Hey everybody, welcome to the latest episode of The Fortress of Rock. I am the maestro, Kevin Crane. It is 4-22-22. This is episode 36 of The Fortress. Glad as always to have you aboard. Segment one, news of the world. As always, our tribute to Freddie Mercury and Queen. Couple things for you. Follow up first and foremost on the story last week where the hints, the rumors, the allegations of a Van Halen tribute tour gestated, percolated, thanks to Jason Newstead of Metallica breaking. I guess a long-standing rock and roll code that when you're talking about these type of things behind the scenes, you do not tell the press. So, of course, as we talked about last week, Joe Satriani came in, basically confirmed the rumors that Alex Van Halen had reached out and talked to both Newstead and Satriani about putting together some kind of a Van Halen tribute tour. Well, now David Lee Roth has chimed in. And I have to give credit, as always, to my sources for this episode, as well as each and every episode, ultimateclassicrock.com, thisdayinmusic.com, and the Van Halen News Desk. David Lee Roth gave a very short, succinct quote about these rumors, basically siding with Satriani, confirming that this was indeed in the works, but at the same time also admitted that he probably wouldn't be up for doing a full show. Of course, David Lee Roth has supposedly retired, canceled all of the shows he was supposed to be doing at the beginning of 2022 in Las Vegas on his retirement residency. Of course, we talked about rumors that Alex Van Halen was going to play drums at a couple of those shows. Never came to fruition. The shows never came to be. Dave's always said he thought he would be the first to go out of the original four in Van Halen, and he's looking rough. And we all know his voice is not what it used to be. And even back in the day, it wasn't the greatest voice in the world. Everybody knows what made David Lee Roth a great front man was the personality, the humor, the energy. But anyway, David Lee Roth did not refute what Jason Newstead and Joe Satriani put out there. He just kind of said, hey, we probably need some help. We have to get Mikey back in, Michael Anthony, of course, on bass. Maybe Tommy Lee helps out Alex on drums. He even mentioned Pink as the one singer he would 
he would choose to take on his vocal parts. Very interesting. This is going to have to happen no later than 2023, if it's going to happen at all. I'd still like to see Steve Vai get involved. It would be a great, great dual tandem guitar display with Joe Satriani and Steve Vai, in my opinion, taking over for Eddie. That would be about the only scenario where I would say, as a diehard Van Halen fan, I can do that. I can live with that. No problems with Jason Newstead on bass, but of course, Michael Anthony has to be the first choice. I don't care about the animosity, the split with Van Halen 2.0. And that was the one name that David Lee Roth would not mention. He would not bring up Sammy Hagar. And I still I still get hurt and upset that nobody gives Gary Sharon any credit for one really good album with Van Halen 3. Bring in Nuno, Nuno Betancourt. Bring in Extreme to open the show with Sharon and Betancourt. I would assume they have talked. I would assume Alex has talked to his nephew, Wolfgang. Since his name has not come up at all. I'm just assuming that Wolfgang has moved on. He's doing mammoth. That's why nobody has mentioned him playing bass. One of my other favorite bands from the 80s. Triumph. I have always wondered what happened. Why Triumph faded away and never made really much of an attempt to come back. Maybe we'll find out now because they have supported this they are all three members, Rick Emmett, Gilmore, Mike Levine, are all three involved in Triumph Rock and Roll Machine, the documentary. If you want to buy an online ticket, you can look that up. It will debut on May the 13th. It'll be available online through the rest of May. For streaming, I am hoping that after that, maybe it'll hit Amazon or HBO. Amazon's really good about bringing in a lot of really solid rock and roll documentaries. So I'm hoping maybe we get to June, July, August. Rock and Roll Machine will make its way to one of the streaming services. But I am intrigued. I am definitely interested in hearing about 
why Triumph never tried to push things farther than they did. Now, in a way, they did the right thing. Go out on top or close to being on top. It was obvious they were on the downslide as a lot of bands from the late 70s and the 80s were. They made one or two fledgling attempts to get back together, played some concerts, but they were so few and so far between, it barely made a blip on the rock and roll radar. And Rick Emmett did a little bit of solo work, but again, not really prolific. So I will be very interested to hear what the three members of Triumph have to say about what happened and why it ended a little bit sooner than it should have and why there was never a really true effort to stage a comeback. I don't like to talk about reissues, box sets. To me, they're boring. They're a waste of time. They're trying to make money off of the diehard fans. Usually these box sets are so elaborate and they cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars the normal fan really can't afford them. And it's kind of unfair. It's kind of mean in a way to expect, let's face it, a middle class to lower middle class person to shell out $100, $150, $200 for a deluxe edition of, let's say, recently moving pictures from Rush. You get all the bells and whistles and you get all these live shows included with the original album, which is, of course, remastered. Think of all the new music you could buy. Or even the regular editions of old albums that maybe you don't have or maybe you've always wanted to listen to that you never got a chance to think of all the, the different types of new and old music you could listen to instead of shelling out a hundred, 150 bucks for a remastered reissued deluxe edition of a 40 year old album. I don't like it. I have never liked it. I never will like it. And I've never bought one. Now, I grew up as a child of the box sets, the original box sets, when things were a little more reasonable in terms of price. Of course, the old Led Zeppelin box set. We'll talk about Bon Jovi later. That box set, really, really good. Cheap Trick, The Police, I've got all of those. But back then, they were $30, $40. And you basically got, if not the entire catalog from the band, 
you got most of their big hits, plus a lot of live cuts, a lot of B-sides. And now it just seems like it's let's take advantage of our fans. And I don't like it at all. Oh, let's, oh, you get a poster, a replica poster of our 1977 show. Or here, here's a plastic lanyard of what it looked like to get a backstage pass for our 1981 show. Sorry, it's garbage. I will not subject myself to those type of greedy, money-grabbing box sets. Now, that being said, one of my favorite bands is Collective Soul. They are coming out with the deluxe edition of Precious Declaration. I'm sorry, Discipline Breakdown is the album. My fault. Precious Declaration, of course, the first single off of this box set, a remix that I just listened to today. That's why it's stuck in my brain. But of course, Discipline Breakdown is the album I'm talking about. A two-CD set coming out on June the 17th. A little bit more reasonably priced, a little bit more of a reasonable package. Remastered version of Discipline Breakdown with a bonus CD of a live show from Chicago in 1997. And as I mentioned, they just released a remixed version of Precious Declaration, the first single off of Discipline Breakdown. Now, I listened to, as I mentioned, the new version of Precious Declaration. I can't hear. I I think I have a pretty good ear for music, kids. I can't hear a difference between the original version and the new version. Maybe it's a little cleaner, but really not a lot of difference so that makes me wonder again why am i going to shell out 20 bucks i've already got collective soul live a couple different discs do i really need another concert dvd or cd from them now there are supposedly some Outtakes and B-sides included here. I have not seen the full track list yet. I will keep you updated, but... At least this one's cheaper. <laughs> at least this one's not 100 bucks, right? And it is a fantastic album. Discipline Breakdown is a fantastic album. And of course, Collective Soul, I am biased, playing favorites here, has been one of those few bands over the last 30 years who have actually put out consistently high-quality music. And they've tried to put new stuff out every two to three years. They have tried to keep themselves energized, revitalized, they tour all the time. They're fantastic live. 
again, will I check out the new deluxe edition of Discipline Breakdown? Yeah, I probably will. I don't know if I'll buy it. I'll check it out on Spotify, of course. We love Spotify here. As we're on Spotify, Anchor, Google, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, Breaker, Apple, Overcast, CastBox, and Stitcher. Finally, wrapping up here, news of the world. It's an odd story. I don't want to say that because it involves someone's passing, but it's still an odd story. Another one of my favorite bands of all time is Kiss. When I went through my early music phase, when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I went through disco, KTEL records. For those of you over 50 years old, you remember KTEL. Basically, that's what you get now with the That's What I Call Music series. That's what KTEL was back when I was just about to hit my teens. KTEL would put out two or three compilation albums every year of the greatest hits that were out there. They had deals with all the major music labels. And so you could go out for $5.99 and buy 12, 13 song album, vinyl, yes, vinyl, of a bizarre mix. It was bizarre. You'd get disco, you would get country, you'd get rock. And then, of course, when I graduated after a year or two from disco and the KTEL records, that's when I actually learned to love rock and roll. And Kiss was the first band. Kiss was the one that, dare I say it, broke my cherry. That's fitting considering what I'm about to talk about. And I will couch this in very careful terms so I do not cross the line and become an explicit podcast for this week. But, of course, Kiss was the first band that I ever really loved when it came to straight-on rock and roll. There were other bands I liked. I liked Foreigner back then. I had a Kansas 8-track of Point of No Return. Those bands will always be near and dear to my heart. I'm hoping, finally, to get to see Kansas live, possibly this summer. They are playing at a fair near me, so I might actually finally get to see them live. I have seen Foreigner, but of, of course... Sad thing is I never got to see them with Lou Graham. Anyway, circling back. So Kiss, one of their famous songs, infamous songs, not a hit, but most rock fans, especially Kiss fans, know the song Plaster Caster. Well, the groupie that inspired the song Plaster Caster from Kiss, as well as she appeared in a song, I believe, from Jim Croce, 
Cynthia Albritton has passed away. One of the most interesting stories in rock history. Of course, we all know about groupies. We will not get into detail. Again, I want to keep this as child-friendly as I can. I want you to be able to listen to this with your kids so they might learn something about the history of rock and roll. But Cynthia Albritton was a groupie. And, of course, groupies in many ways, only had one goal. I'm not saying that's all they wanted, but in the end, groupies pretty much wanted to be with the band in the carnal sense. Now, Cynthia Albritton was really not much different, but to get started on being a groupie, to meet the guys in the bands who she wanted to get to know a little bit more intimately. She kind of took her passion for art and turned it into a way to get into the backstage areas, to talk to the band members, to talk to the singers, the guitarists, in these bands she loved. What she had was a proposal to the great rock stars of the 60s and the 70s, even into the 80s and 90s. And I find it funny, later on in life, she changed up what she was doing And we'll get to that in a second, but she initially started out wanting to make plaster casts of these rock stars' genitalia. So she had dozens of dozens of plaster casts of the private parts of rock stars like Jimi Hendrix and Gene Simmons. And I mentioned she met, she moved on trying to be more equal. Towards the end, she was making casts of female rock stars' breasts. There you go. There's your equal rights. There's your hashtag Me Too movement. Good for her. Hell, sounds great. Sounds fun. Sounds like she had a fantastic life. Look online. I'm not going to go into the details of her life. There's other people out there who've done a better job than I could of detailing what she went through, who she molded, (laughs) I guess the best way to put it. Um, Like I said, the biggest names are Hendrix, Simmons, 
It's a really interesting story. Let's put it that way. She lost possession of her molds for a while and had to go into court. Again, you got to read it online, read the details. I can't do it justice. All I will say is from what I read, this is why you will never trust anybody ever, even with good intentions involved. Yes, we're talking about plaster casts of male genitalia and people fighting over these molds in court. But in the end, the lesson is never trust anyone. Never trust anyone because somehow they will find a way to screw you. No pun intended. So once again, one of the most notorious groupies in rock and roll history, Cynthia Albritton, rest in peace. You live the life. Good for you. Boy, kids, have we got fun coming up in the next segment. I am going to give you a review of one of the worst concerts I have ever seen. I have been going to concerts for 40 years. I have seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows. I saw one, and we're not talking about a small bar band we're talking about an arena show. And it was abysmal. We'll also talk about Jack White's new album, Fear of the Dawn. The first of two new albums he's got coming out in 2022. And the Pink Floyd Ukrainian anthem, I guess you'd call it trying to put a voice to the people overseas going through hell on earth. I will not be as kind to this song as you would think I would be, even though the spirit and the heart behind it, the purpose behind it, I cannot question. Admirable beyond belief. All love and affection and support to the people of Ukraine. But that's not what we do here. We review the music. That's our purpose. So Breakdown is really going to be the worst of the maestro, for the most part. You're going to see, hear a lot of negative, negative things. You're going to see the worst side of me. <laughs> when it comes to this concert and the Pink Floyd Ukraine tribute song. But it is what it is, so glad to have you aboard here on April the 22nd, 2022. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Fortress of Rock podcast with me, the maestro, Kevin Crane. Of course, that was segment one, the news of the world our tribute to Freddie Mercury and Queen, where we look back at the past week in rock and roll and all the news and all the controversies that you deserve to know about. Next up is the heart of the show, 
the meat and potatoes breakdown where we are going to review all the new songs, all the new albums, all the new concert tours, the shows that I've seen personally. Stay tuned for that. Of course, we're now available on Spotify, Anchor, Apple, Stitcher, CastBox, Google, Pocket Cast, and Radio Public, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hang out, kids. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to the Fortress of Rock. I am the maestro, Kevin Crane. Glad to have you aboard, as always, here on April the 22nd, 2022. Available all over the place, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, CastBox, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, you will find us. Time to do a review of, as I alluded to at the end of the last segment, one of the worst big arena rock shows I have ever seen in my life. Tuesday, April the 19th, Gainbridge Fieldhouse, Indianapolis, Indiana a venue I've been to before. I have seen shows before that have been fantastic there. I've seen shows before that have been mediocre. But wow. Bon Jovi was awful. Absolutely awful. I cannot begin to describe all the problems this show presented for me. I had to, on occasion, look to the people I went to the concert with, with a, a questioning look on my face, like, am I going crazy or is this just an awful, abysmal show? And they agreed with me. Now, number one problem was, Showtime was supposed to be 8 o'clock. There were rumors circulating before this Bon Jovi tour began, which I think just carries through the month of April, that they were going to have opening acts, local opening acts. They were going to pick bands from whatever city they were in and bring them in to open the show. So we figured we better try to get there on time. And we barely made it. Once again, a lot of these venues still don't know what they're doing with security, with COVID protocols. Worst part of this was doors opened at 6.30 for an 8 o'clock show. We got in line to get in at 7.30, barely got to our seats before 8 o'clock. With no COVID testing, with no requirement of masks with no requirement of showing proof of vaccination. So you get what I'm saying here. There, This was a normal flow for a regular concert that we would have seen five, six, seven years ago, and it still took forever to get into the arena. So number one, bad 
bad form on the part of Gainbridge Fieldhouse. Now we get there, we get in our seats about two or three minutes before eight o'clock, settle in, nothing going on with the stage. The stage looks like it is set for Bon Jovi and Bon Jovi alone. No opening act in sight. Okay. If you want to do that, that's fine. But then we get no opening act and Bon Jovi doesn't come on until almost 8.30. I don't know what the deal was. I don't know if they couldn't find a local band they wanted to have open for them. I don't know if they noticed the problems getting people in to Gainbridge Fieldhouse that we did. And they had to hold off on starting to make sure people got in. Still unacceptable. Still ridiculously unacceptable. So now, we sit in our seat almost a half hour longer than we thought we were going to have to after the quote-unquote start time for the concert. So about 8.27, 8.28, Bon Jovi comes on. Stage setup looks cool. There's some video screens to the side to help everybody see. There's a, a couple others that drop down behind the band at times. All right, looks good. Looks all right. Let's get going. They come out, number one, they play a song that really, I don't care what you think of old Bon Jovi versus new Bon Jovi. Nobody wanted to hear this much out of the last album from 2020 called 2020. They come out with Limitless. That's the opening song. We were debating, my friends and I, is it going to be Let It Rock? Is it going to be Lay Your Hands On Me? One of those two kick-ass opening songs from either Slippery When Wet or New Jersey. And we get Limitless from 2020. So already you feel like you've gotten a punch in the gut musically. Then we get the Radio Save My Life Tonight. And I mentioned box sets in segment one. This song is off of their box set, which I do love. It's a very good, at the time it was a very comprehensive, relatively affordable box set but not the greatest song in the world. And I'm, we're two songs in, and I'm going, what What the heck is going on? Now, on top of that, the fact the set list has started off so bad, the sound is awful. It's, it's really murky. It's bad. You can't hear the lyrics. And John Bon Jovi can't sing anymore his voice is terrible it is terrible the worst moment of the whole concert for me came at song three when they finally said let's give him a hit 
Let's give the audience a hit. You're expecting that raucous, awesome chant. The band gets together. Screaming, shot through the heart and you're to blame. You give love a bad name. I just did better right there than Bon Jovi did. They were off key. They sounded ab abhorrent, terrible, ab an embarrassment, an absolute embarrassment. They, they, they couldn't sync up their vocals. This was one of the few times where I wish the crowd had taken over on vocals. And he did try. John Bon Jovi did try to get the crowd to sing more. Not quite as bad as what I've seen in the past. Motley Crue comes to mind. When Vince Neil was on the the last legs of... And I'm, I'm scared to death to hear what Vince Neil sounds like coming up in August on this stadium tour with Def Leppard, Poison, and Joan Jett. But John Bon Jovi can't really be given credit for being much better. He sounded awful. 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 And the, he doesn't have any charisma on stage either. I thought John Bon Jovi was supposed to be one of the, the founding fathers of the 80s rock movement. I thought he would have a little bit more energy, a little bit more connection to the audience than he did. And outside of one moment at the beginning of It's My Life, where, of course, he dedicated, dedicated that to the people of the Ukraine because there is a clip out there of them singing It's My Life kind of as a rallying cry for what they've been through. One of the few positive, powerful moments the entire night. I just can't tell you how disappointed I was in this concert. There were so many songs that they could have played that they didn't, where they deferred to newer stuff. It seemed like an ego run for John, where he's trying to tell everybody, you are... Now, in this arena, you've paid your money already, so I'm going to dictate what gets played. You, as the fan, don't get a say. I don't care about the songs you love, that you know, that have affected your life. I'm going to play the stuff I want to play. It's the ego that we see with guys like John Mellencamp and Bruce Springsteen. Here's the difference. Mellencamp and, and Springsteen, to me, have kind of earned the right. I don't like it, but they've earned the right to do that. After seeing Bon Jovi live in concert this past Tuesday, I'm embarrassed they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I am completely and totally embarrassed that they are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
There have been bands I have complained about, like the Pretenders, who I don't think should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There are other bands who I would rather see in. Now I want Bon Jovi out. I want their membership revoked. That's how bad this show was. I'm not going to go through the rest of the set list. They played 21 songs overall. About two hours and five, two hours and ten minutes total. At the end, of course, they bunched together all their hits, one encore. Last four songs, they finally made up for an abysmal set list, as I mentioned. Last four songs, Living on a Prayer, and then into the encore, you get Wanted, Dead, or Alive. Who says you can't go home and bad medicine? To wrap up my venting, to wrap up my criticism of this show, let me just point out a few things. Nothing off the first two albums. Nothing. No runaway. No in and out of love. Nothing. Off the debut album or 7800 degrees Fahrenheit. Nothing. Not one song. They played five songs off of 2020. Combined, they played five songs off of Slippery When Wet and New Jersey. That should tell you how much of a travesty this show was. This is, again, John Bon Jovi acting like he is some kind of an elder statesman of rock and roll. I'm too, I'm too old and mature to play songs off of those albums from the 80s. I'm too important now. Garbage. Garbage. No blaze of glory. One of my, I know it's a solo song from him, but anymore, without Richie Sambora in the band, it's basically a John Bon Jovi solo band. No Blaze of Glory. How do you not play Blaze of Glory? Literally, go to Setlist FM, go to the wiki. And look at this set list. It is abysmal. It is. Te- I keep saying abysmal. It is how bad this show was. It was so terrible. The only show that I could come up with, again, major acts, major concerts, not talking about bar bands, stuff like that. The only other concert I could come up with that was remotely close to being this bad was when I saw Cheap Trick. Probably it would have been 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Headlining on their own a small venue in western Indiana just over the the border from Illinois. They played an hour and 15 minutes. Again, just like Bon Jovi, 
disdain for the fans. We're not going to play any of the stuff you expect us to play. I'm not saying I want these bands to just do hit sets all the time. That's not what I'm saying, because I've gone that way. I've seen the other way. I saw Poison three years in a row about 10 years ago. And they never changed their set list. Never tried anything new or different. I don't want that either. I want a nice mix in the middle. Play one or two new songs. Change up one of your hits. Do it a little bit differently. I've seen that in the past with Collective Soul with December. God knows they're probably tired of playing that song, so they try to 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 change it a little bit, make it a little more piano-based. Sometimes they make it a little reggae. But for the love of God, to pass over, for the most part, the portion of your career that made you, that put you in the Rock Hall of Fame, that gave you the fortune and fame you have now, to basically ignore that and barely acknowledge it. And when you do, do it in such terrible, piss-poor form. Again, next to Cheap Trick, who redeemed themselves partially for me later on, never fully, I have lost so much respect for Bon Jovi. And now I wonder if Richie Sambora did not know what he was doing and basically getting his butt out of that band. Yes, I know he has substance abuse issues. I'm not saying that's why he did what he did. But maybe, maybe somewhere he knew he needed to get away from this because this was going downhill and it was going downhill fast. And if it wasn't for the fact he had the one big hit with Who Says You Can't Go Home and turned country for a time there, if it wasn't for that one song, I don't know if Bon Jovi would be playing shows in front of sold-out arenas anymore. I don't know if you've heard the last of this from me. This could be an anguish, a hurt, an anger that goes on for weeks and weeks. But I have got other stuff to look at, to review. So, baby, as the offspring says, let the bad times roll. Pink Floyd's tribute song in support of Ukraine. Hey, hey, rise up, where they say this is the last Pink Floyd song you will ever hear. Now, of course, the good thing about this is Roger Waters is not involved because he is such a pretentious asshat. This man thinks he is the creative genius of all time. Yet when was the last time you heard any new music come out of Roger Waters? 
So that being said, still not a fan of Pink Floyd, never have been. I could tolerate them a little bit more when it was the David Gilmore version. Momentary lapse of reason. But this, I don't know what the purpose of this is outside of, again, solidarity with Ukraine. We are not in any way, shape, or form going to say that a song, because of its quality, doesn't have a good heart behind it. So, of course, we stand with Ukraine. Russia is just... turning things back in terms of the world clock. We're going all the way back to World War II, World War I. Dictators. The common man, I don't care if it's in Russia, Ukraine, U.S., China, wherever it is, the common man, the common woman are being ground under the foot of stupid politicians and stupid power grabs. So that being said, that thought, that mindset behind this song, I'm completely 100% behind what Pink Floyd is trying to do. That being said, this song is terrible. With the exception of a really, really good David Gilmour guitar solo in the middle, you've got a Ukrainian singer singing in their native tongue at the beginning and at the end. I can't relate to the song. I don't know what he's saying. It's not a Pink Floyd song outside of the David Gilmore guitar solo. So there's no way musically, creatively, I can recommend this. But again, I am 100% behind the thoughts, the prayers, the emotions behind what Pink Floyd is doing. So finally... To wrap up Breakdown, segment two here, our tribute to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. My review of the latest Jack White solo album, Fear of the Dawn. He will have a second solo album coming out later this year because he is prolific. He is creative. He's got the dead weather. He's got the tours. Of course, used to have the White Stripes. And, of course, now his solo career. I have said this about Jack White in the past, and I will continue to say it in fear of the dawn reinforces my opinions and my thoughts about Jack White. He needs somebody, anybody, even a rudimentary drummer like Meg White to keep him in check. He needs somebody in the group dynamic who has the power to tell him Let's rein it in. Let's not do all the bells and whistles. Let's just make some good songs. That's why I think the tours right now are his best option in terms of what we get from him in terms of top quality music. I don't like the dead weather. I don't know if he's going to end up going back to them at some point. I don't know if he's going to stick with the solo career completely. I hope he gets the Rack on Tours back together because to me that 
outside of the white stripes is the one creative outlet where I respect Jack White. Fear of the Dawn had promise, had potential based on the early releases. But again, like I just said, too many bells and whistles. He's trying to, he's like a music daredevil where he's trying to show you, hey, look what I can do. Look at all the stuff I can cram into three minutes of a song. But it doesn't make the songs better. We've all heard Taking Me Back, track one. Really good, really solid. But again, this is an example of what you get with solo Jack White. This one's good enough, but again, you can hear him pushing the envelope with too much stuff going on in the background. Track two, title, Fear of the Dawn. Again, another great song we've heard before. At this point, I know what I'm getting. I've heard the songs before. I'm good with it. Then we get arguably the weakest song on the album, The White Raven. It's okay. Doesn't do much for me. Then his collaboration with Q-Tip, song four, Heidi Ho, which is catchy. But again, is it really a fully formed song? Is this what I want from Jack White? Yes, he explores the limits when it comes to funk, R&B, soul, face-melting guitar work. But it just never seems like he can put it all together as coherently as he does with the Tours or as he did in the past with the White Stripes. Next up, Isiosophobia. Okay, again, just like the White Raven, maybe a little better than that, but not great. Then you get the odd into the twilight, which the chorus sounds to me almost like a Madonna song. Nothing wrong with dance music. Nothing wrong with the song with a good beat. But again, a lot of these songs don't sound like they're fully formed. They sound like they're ideas that he wanted to put out there maybe a little bit quicker than he should have. Track seven is Dusk. It's a 30-second musical interlude, waste of time. Track eight, probably my favorite on the album, What's the Trick, which was the last song released right before the entire album came out. Now, What's the Trick is a lot like Heidi Ho. It's more dance-oriented in a way, got a heavy beat but it works. It's a nice melding of rock and hip hop and funk and dance. Track nine, that was then, this is now again, a really mediocre endeavor, just like the White Raven and Yosophobia. And then we get track 10 is the Yosophobia reprise. I can't tell you how much I hate it when artists do reprises. That's so pretentious to me. And some of the bands that I've loved over the years have done these. 
where they revisit a song and oh, I've got to do a little bit more in terms of a short musical interlude that ties into that previous song. I don't know if that goes back to classical music because I'm not a classical music guy. It just seems like the ultimate waste of time for not only the musician, but for the fans, the people who have spent their hard-earned money to buy an album. It's like one too many cover songs. You're trying to fill in time. You're trying to make the album bigger and longer than it needs to be. That's what she said. Track 11, Morning, Noon, and Night, next to What's the Trick might be my favorite on Fear of the Dawn. It sounds the most to me like what the old White Stripes sounded like. Definitely hope Morning, Noon, and Night gets some airplay or at least gets some attention. Great, great song, track 11. Then finally, closing out with Shedding My Velvet. I'm on the fence with this one because the more I listen to Fear of the Dawn, this one kind of is growing on me a little bit more each and every time I listen. I still can't give it a wholehearted recommendation, but it's not bad. But unlike some of the other songs on Fear of the Dawn that I have been wishy-washy on, this one sounds like it has the most potential to, after a few more listens, end up being a better song. So Fear of the Dawn is good, not great. Check it out. Listen to it. It's probably the best you're going to get here for a while. I don't see any great stuff on the horizon for the next month. But as far as this podcast goes, more good stuff coming. I'm the maestro. Stay tuned. All right. Now that we've looked at the current state of music in our breakdown segment, it is time to climb into the DeLorean and travel back in time to look back at moments in rock and roll history, birthdays, deaths, anniversaries of song and album releases. It is time for I Want to Go Back our tribute to Eddie Money. Stay tuned. And as always, we're on Spotify, Anchor, Apple, Stitcher, CastBox, Google, Pocket Cast, and Radio Public, anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hey, everybody. Time to start winding things down here Friday night. April the 22nd, 2022, episode 36 of the Fortress of Rock. I'm the maestro, Kevin Crane. Segment three, as always, delving into the history of rock and roll, birthdays, anniversaries, classic rock album releases. One anniversary to discuss, this is a point of contention with me when it comes to arguing with music fighting about music with my friends not of course like throwing punches 
but you know, a good feisty discussion. One of the bands, the most polarizing bands out there where you can find you love them or you hate them is the Dave Matthews band. One of my best friends in the world and I have gone to see so many concerts together. It's ridiculous. The one concert he still to this day holds against me that I dragged him to, him and his wife, was the Dave Matthews Band. Now, she liked it. But he, being a little bit of a, a metalhead, a little bit harder rocker even than I am, could not stand the Dave Matthews Band. Now, there have been other acts that I have coerced him into seeing that he has turned around and said, I'm glad we went to see that band like the Counting Crows. He admits he loved them. One of our favorite bands mutually dragged him to see, and this is a smaller band, but Maybe some of you in the southwestern United States know Roger Klein and the Peacemakers. Dragged him to see them here locally at a small club probably about 15 years ago, maybe closer to 20 years ago. And now he is, like I said, one of not only my favorite bands, but one of his favorite bands. So the Dave Matthews Band, getting back to the point, I have found to be a polarizing band. They are one of those groups that if you don't get them, you're never going to get them. I don't think there is a middle ground for some bands like Dave Matthews, Kings of Leon is another one. Going Back in Time, Grateful Dead, Pearl Jam. These bands where the fans get so enamored with this group that they will tour across the country with them. They will drop everything, abandon their lives to follow these bands because they're legendary in terms of live music. They change their set list a lot, which I think is the key. And I think a lot of other bands could learn from the Pearl Jams, the Dave Matthews Band, the Fish, you know, all these other bands that live have a cult following. Change your set list up. But be smart about it. Always be smart. At least give a, a smattering, a decent sampling of, I don't want to say hits, but the more familiar songs that you have done in your set list so the fans aren't completely disengaged. And that was a funny thing. When the one show where we went to see Dave Matthews 
I think we're going on four years now, three or four years when we saw him doing a two-night stand in Indianapolis, played completely different set lists, Friday night, Saturday night. And the show we saw, once the dust had settled, both shows had been played, and I looked at the set list for both both nights, I told him, I said, you realize we got the better of the two. We really did. And that was in my opinion as a fan. And he's, I don't care. Dave Matthews sucks. I can't stand him. Again, there are some bands out there like that, that are polarizing. There's bands that he likes that I don't like at all. We won't get into those. I'm not in the mood to fracture friendships and relationships at this point. But that being said, 1991, on this date, April the 22nd, was the first live Dave Matthews Band show. Check out our Facebook page. Drop me a line. Let me know what you think of Dave Matthews. Love him. Hate him. On the fence. Like I said, I have not met many people who are on the fence. Dave Matthews does not, and in most cases, elicit a reaction of, he's okay. It's either love him, hate him. Three significant rock and roll birthdays to discuss April the 22nd. Of course, the legendary country artist, Glenn Campbell, who died in 2017, was born on this day in 1936. I have always said when I was growing up in the late 70s and early 80s, as opposed to the country music that's out there now. This cleaned up, poppy, generic stuff that I can't stand, which is more popular than ever, so that shows you how much I know. When I was growing up, there was a country pop resurgence were bands like the Oak Ridge Boys. Waylon Jennings even had a top 40 hit. Dolly Parton had hits. And of course, Glenn Campbell had multiple top 40 hits, including the classic Rhinestone Cowboy, which Jackal, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, live bands of all time opens up with. They don't play it themselves, but they play it over the loudspeakers as they come out on stage. And the crowd sings along, goes crazy, and loves every second of it. Another underrated Glenn Campbell song, Southern Nights, 
which was a big hit when I was a kid. I used to listen to Casey Kasem's American Top 40 every Sunday morning. And again, a lot of these country songs, these old school country songs, not the new school stuff, but the old school stuff, would occasionally sneak into the top 40 on the pop charts. Glenn Campbell, of course, was one of the most famous crossover country artists back then. Another rock legend from the 70s. Birthday today. 72 years old. Arguably the the greatest, most significant live album of all time. Frampton Comes Alive. Peter Frampton celebrating a birthday today. An interesting discussion. An interesting debate you kids can bring up at a party here, coming up, getting into the summer months. We talked about Bon Jovi in the last segment. And I told you how disgusted and disappointed I was with the live show I just saw from them. And how now I'm wondering why we put them in the Rock Hall of Fame. Here's my question. Given the historical rock and roll significance of Frampton Comes Alive, and I know he really didn't do much outside of that. Had another two or three hits. But... If we're going to say Nirvana gets in the Rock Hall of Fame through Nevermind and Nevermind Only, and I'm sorry, that's pretty much it. You could almost say the same thing with Guns N' Roses and Appetite for Destruction. If one album, one truly significant album puts you in the Rock Hall of Fame, why isn't Peter Frampton in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for Frampton Comes Alive? Why isn't Boston in the Hall of Fame for their debut album? I think in many ways, and I know the idiots that vote for the Rock Hall of Fame don't think like you and me, but if you're going to pick bands who at least had one nuclear moment in rock history who deserve to be in the rock hall of fame above some others i would say peter frampton again for arguably the most successful most influential live album ever he deserves to be in i've been campaigning campaigning over and over for foreigner and boston As bitter as I am about seeing Bon Jovi, those three acts need to be in now ahead of Bon Jovi. Kick Bon Jovi out, put one of those three acts back in. Put them in. 
finally, one of the most underrated voices in the last 35, 40 years of rock and roll, if not 50 years, Paul Carrick, 71 years old, today on April the 22nd, born in 1951. Paul Carrick, I know the younger audience out there, who are you talking about? Well, you got to realize this guy has sung lead vocals with three different bands on three significant, significant hits through the 70s and the 80s. He was a lead singer for Ace and their monster hit, How Long, which you still hear on classic rock radio today. Then for a short time, he was keyboard player for Squeeze. The thing is, he sang lead vocals on arguably their most popular song, Tempted. Check out your old MTV archives and watch the video and see Paul Carrick singing lead vocals. And then finally, the massive hit after... Genesis started to fracture and break up. Phil Collins going on his solo jaunt. Everybody forgets that Mike Rutherford, the guitar player for Genesis at that time, went on to form an extremely successful group of his own called Mike and the Mechanics, who had about five or six significant hits, the most significant of them all was Rutherford's heartfelt tribute to his father, sung again by Paul Carrick, The Living Years. I could make the argument that Paul Carrick, based on how he went from port to port to port, from band to band to band, and he had a moderately successful solo career to boot, was one of the more versatile, chameleon-like lead singers in rock history. So happy birthday to Paul Carrick. That'll do it for I Want to Go Back, segment three here on The Fortress. Come back here with Wrap It Up. What to look forward to in the coming weeks in terms of reviews, songs, and albums. Unfortunately, not much in the near future in terms of concerts, but hopefully we'll get some uh, new music released outside of what we've got on our current slate to fill in the gaps for the coming weeks. So stay tuned. The Fortress will be right back. Well, we hope you enjoyed our trip back in time, looking back at the anniversaries, the classic moments in rock and roll history. But of course, the DeLorean works both ways. 
So now we have to move forward. The last segment here, as always, on the Fortress of Rock with me, the maestro Kevin Crane. Spotify, Anchor, Apple, Stitcher, CastBox, Google, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It's all about the future. What's coming out here in the next month or two? What songs? What albums? What concert tours? That's why we call it Wrap It Up. Thanks to the fabulous Thunderbirds. Thanks to you for hanging out. Here comes our final segment. All right, everybody. Time to wrap up episode 36 of the Fortress of Rock here on April the 22nd, 2022. As always, acknowledging ultimateclassicrock.com, thisdayinmusic.com, and the Van Halen News Desk as some of the sources for some of the ideas that you get here every week on The Fortress. In the end, though, the opinions are mine and mine alone. I have been talked into doing a full review of the grunge supergroup Third Secrets debut album. I think we discussed this a little bit last week. I may have mentioned my misgivings from what I'd heard about doing a full review of this. But I have been cajoled, pushed, nudged, threatened into doing a full review of Third Secret. So within the next week or two, I will have my full review of the debut album from the grunge supergroup Third Secret with Chris Novoselic, Kim Thale, and Matt Cameron. I will also have a review coming up of Kirk Hammett's debut EP Portals the guitarist from Metallica. We've talked about guitar solo work lately a lot. We've we've heard from Steve Vai and Tom Morello and how they've put out solo albums. And I've told you, it's something that I can really only take in short doses, full albums worth of, of this type of stuff doesn't really do it for me. Maybe an EP, I believe it's a four song EP from Kirk Hammett portals. Maybe in a smaller dose like that, I can digest it. I've heard he was inspired by horror films. I don't know if that should intrigue me or scare me. No pun intended. Uh, one of the songs I know is High Plains Drifter. I appreciate the homage to the great Clint Eastwood movie. 
So again, we'll give Kirk Hammett's Portals EP a shot here within the next week or two. Then finally, Def Leppard released the second single from their upcoming album, Diamond Star Halos. Take what you want. That will definitely be on the agenda for next week. Episode 37 of the Fortress of Rock. I've listened to a little bit of it. I like it a lot more than I like Kick. Kick sounded like Def Leppard trying to make a hit single. Take What You Want is a little bit rougher. Sounds a little bit more like high and dry era Def Leppard, which is all good for me and for you. Otherwise, again, I don't know the slate in terms of new releases for the next two or three weeks is a little bare. The cupboard is barren. I'll rely on Spotify to point the way for some new music, maybe. And I also said not much in the way of concerts coming up now once we get through to mid-june then we will be filling in each and every week pretty much from mid-june through mid-august concert reviews every week looking forward to that that will include sammy hagar with george thorogood the rescheduled Billy Joel Notre Dame concert, the rescheduled Doobie Brothers anniversary tour, the Def Leppard Poison, Joan Jett, Motley Crue, Festival of Rock, looking at possibly Kansas, looking at possibly a Pat Benatar show in there, looking at possibly another massive 80s hair metal rock show featuring Dokken, Firehouse, Winger, George Lynch, and Great White. Unfortunately, the Foo Fighters were supposed to be in there, but we all know about Taylor Hawkins. So we'll fight through this next month. I will get you as much new stuff as I can dig up. We'll go back in the archives. We'll find more anniversaries, more points of discussion when it comes to album releases and the history of rock and roll. This is a labor of love for me. I know. Not many people out there are listening. We're hoping we change that eventually. But I love talking about rock and roll, so I don't care. Until Spotify kicks me off week in, week out, every Friday night, I will be here for you and for me discussing the music that I love and I know that you love so much. I hope you have a great weekend. 
Hopefully the weather is fantastic where you are. Once again, the weather sucks here. We're supposed to get up in the 80s tomorrow and then it just plummets. It's amazing to me how people here aren't sick morning, noon, and night with the 50 degree, degree the, the temperature swings that we get within 24 to 48 hours. Oh, how I pine and yearn to be back in Florida. Once again, have a great weekend. I'm the maestro Kevin Crane. We will talk to you next Friday night. Take care, everybody.